And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and all the spaces in between. Back in the 1960s, the El Mugi household in downtown Cairo was famous for its parties. At least once a week, a crowd would cram into its living room. My grandmother's living room would take, like, squeeze together maybe like 20 people. And people were, like, quite comfortable sitting on the floor or outside the room or whatever. But the room itself, I think, would, would take, like, 15, 20 people at most. Sahar al-Mugi was just a young girl then, but she remembers the room well, and she remembers how it would fill up with poets and artists and intellectuals. Writers, people from the radio. And then, after everybody had arrived, these two figures would usually stand up in the crowd. One of them would pick up Oud, and the other would pull out a poem he'd prepared. Together, they'd start to perform. were Sheikh Imam and Ahmad Fuad Nagim. I used to squeeze myself into those grown-ups and just listen. Imam had this kind of genius, actually, and I'm usually very hesitant to use the, the word, but he had this smart handling of this kind of poetry Sahar didn't know this at the time, but what she was watching from the floor in that room, full of grown-ups, was the start of a new era in Egyptian popular music. They were very special times. Over the next two decades, they became household names. People across the country would play their music. But the more popular they became, the more dangerous they were to the ruling party. Again and again, their songs would land them in prison. Under both the regimes, Abgamal Abdel Nasser and Anwar al-Sadat, freedom of expression was closely monitored, and any criticism of state affairs, even in songs, could be a punishable offense. Both Negim and Imam were imprisoned by Gamal Abdel Nasser and then banned from leaving the country under the rule of Anwar al-Sadat. But to others, they were heroes, two icons who put into words the disillusionment ordinary people in Egypt had been feeling for a long time. I think that both of them together, I mean, this artistic ex- experience, experiment, this thing tapped into the Egyptian psyche at a time that this psyche was very bruised. And it gave voice to this pain. Today, the story of one of those men, Sheikh Imam, the Egyptian singer who became a symbol of dissent and whose music, decades later, would become a part of the Egyptian Revolution's soundtrack. This is producer Nadine Shakir. Sheikh Imam was born Imam Ahmed Muhammad Isa in a small village outside of Cairo 
In the year before the 1919 Egyptian Revolution, while the country was still under British occupation, when he was around five months old, he lost his eyesight and would never get it back. But he was always a keen student. By the time he was in his early teens, he was able to make money by reciting the Quran at public events. One time, a local sheikh heard him performing and encouraged him to travel to Cairo to carry on his education. Which ultimately proves to be very short-lived. This is historian Andrew Simon. He's the author of a book called Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. And so Imam is expelled from his Islamic institute because he is caught by a fellow student who reports him to his instructors for listening to Quranic recitation over the radio at a cafe. The institute's administrators viewed the radio as this gateway to unbelief and immorality, irrespective of what was being broadcast on the radio. When Imam was expelled, he was made homeless and ended up living in a working-class neighborhood of Cairo, spending his nights sleeping in mosques. For a while, he made a meager living performing at religious festivals and weddings, or reciting the Quran at private homes for special occasions. And it was in one of these performances that he met a well-known music teacher called Sheikh Darwish al-Hariri, who took Imam under his wing as a student and started giving him formal music lessons. And then during the course of these lessons, one of the things that happens is that Imam hears this other individual playing the oud, and he learns that the other guy playing the oud is also blind. And so this is something that shocked him, that a blind person could actually play that instrument. And so he decides to take it up. This is Sheikh Imam talking to the journalist Safina's cousin in 1975. So by 1945 then, Imam ends up committing himself to his art on a full-time basis. Flash forward a number of years, 1962 arrives, and that's when he crosses paths with Ahmed Fouad Nigam, a poet who was known for writing in colloquial Egyptian Arabic. And then those two go on to form a very dynamic duo. In 1962, Sahar's dad, who had been hosting these mini-concerts in his family living room, had a kind of premonition. He knew Nigma and Imam separately. Imam lived in his neighborhood and he'd met Nigma by chance at his office. And he was instantly impressed by both of them. He told me it just, I mean, he just had this urge. The first time he met Nigma, he had this urge to bring him together with Imam not knowing what's going to happen, for sure. But, but he said that Imam had a great talent and voice and so on, and he needed maybe to work at something that's quite different from uh, the track he was walking. Mm-hmm. Nigma, on the other hand, was like an orphan, literally and metaphorically. He had this think that the two really could do something together. 
What's this something? Nobody knew, not even Megm, not Imam. Once they got together, things were moving really fast. The two men formed a strong bond, and together they started composing and singing political songs. They even moved into the same apartment together in Cairo and dedicated everything to their music. And then, in 1967, in the Sinai Desert, in the wake of Egypt's catastrophic retreat, Linasa's wrecked tank. The desert tank graveyard will bear evidence of the sheer Egypt's defeat in the Six-Day War and Israel's annexation of the Sinai Peninsula were a huge blow to Nasser's regime. But it also helped open society a bit. As people became more disillusioned with the war and Nasser's rule, they started to come together to find alternative ways to voice their dissent. Music was one example of that. And one of the reasons that they become popular um, is because of the challenge that they posed to the stories that were being told by Egypt's ruling regimes, whether it came to the the 1967 war of um, not acknowledging the vast disparities between the the wealthy and the poor in Egypt. And so Nigam and Imam together end up undermining the stories that are being told by the state. And that's why they gain traction, and that's why they become icons, especially among the Egyptian left. When thousands of students and workers filled the streets in 1968, protesting Nasser's repressive regime and his response to the 67 defeat, Sheikh Imam's songs were at the center of the protests. Nasser had begun cracking down on dissidents more than ever, And you didn't have to be political. That included anyone. But as government mistrust spread, anyone who opposed him was silenced. One other factor is that the two of them, the two of them belong to a very low economic segment of society. It's not that I am an academic and I'm here in order to teach you something. It's not that I am a highbrow intellectual telling you about what freedom is. And hence, people identified. Middle class identified. Poor people identified. And they could see in them something very different. So, translated into English, Thank God we knocked beneath our armpits. How lovely that our officers have come back from the line of fire. This is Elliot Kulla, professor of Arabic literature at Georgetown University. O people of Egypt, protected by thieves, the fava beans are plentiful and the land is flourishing. He's also co-authoring a book on Ahmed Fouad Nig. You'll hear his translations throughout this episode. We asked him to talk us through Imam's song, Alhamdulillah Khabbatna, or Thank God We Knocked Beneath Our Armpits. It begins in this kind of simple way, but already in that first couple lines you hear, they're making fun of 
the fact that the Egyptian army has, has been beaten and that the officers who rule this, the, this country uh, have just been defeated, right? But the real barbs of the song happen later, towards the, the end of the, of the song, where he says, So what if we ran away from Aqaba? So, in other words, he's accusing the, they're, they're accusing the Egyptian army of desertion, right? Um, what if we ran away from Aqaba or Sinai? Did the defeat make us forget that we are free? What does it matter if a people in their night of humiliation has lost their self? Is it enough to tell them that we are the revolutionaries? Now, in this song, they're coming right out and saying, these people who claim to have been revolutionaries in 1952 have lost the war and are cowards. This poem landed those two in deep, deep trouble with the regime. This is, this is the first time they stepped over the line, and um, this is part of the reason why they became first invited and then banned from state radio. فكان في بداية شهرة واسعة جدا مع الشهرة الواسعة المتقدس so this was when they started to become very famous. Along with this fame, early recordings were leaked. This is Zain al-Abidin Fuad, a well-known Egyptian poet who often collaborated with Imam. Zain spoke to us in Arabic, and we had an actor voice his lines in English. The security apparatus took these songs to Nasser, and he must have said something like, how can he write this? Especially, thank God we're not beneath our armpits. Some of the lyrics could easily be understood as a reference to Nasser himself. This is where they start to name their enemy. And once you name your enemy, that's when you become political. It doesn't name Nasser by name. However, it does refer to somebody as Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> The last line, and if you've if you've heard the song, you know who this uh, Abdul Jabbar, uh, which is it could just be a name, but it also could be a very clear reference just to a tyrant of some kind, right? But even if the government didn't like what they were doing, the people did. As their name started to get out, more and more people started hearing about their performances and cramming into living rooms and cafes to hear them play. But at the end of the day, these spaces would probably only take up to 50 people at a time. Zain told us that Imam's first public concert was at Cairo University in October 1968. I remember the exact date. I took him to an auditorium with 5,000 people. When I introduced him to the crowd, they didn't clap because they had never heard of him before. But after the first song, there was a huge round of applause. Imam sang at both Cairo and Ancient Universities in the span of two weeks. Afterwards, 
Radha and Naash endorsed Imam and Nagy. He invited them to sing at the journalist syndicate. And then he hosted a radio program called Composed by Sheikh Imam. And it aired for a month. This was in 1969. Soon after it aired, they were arrested. But this was not in response to the program per se. Zin says it was because they had started to become more famous. In a way, these songs were an exercise in truth-telling. It was around then that their music became a lot more critical of the state. And according to Zin, somebody reported them to the authorities, that a few of their songs were anti-military. One of them was, thank God we not beneath our armpits. And then there was that other song about Haikal and the lady's dog. They were arrested and weren't released until after Nasser's death. I mean, they were arrested and imprisoned several times throughout their lives. I mean, they were frequent flyers when it came to Egypt's Egypt's prison, and they were well-known entities from the perspective of uh, the security apparatus. Sahar told us she remembers this from when she was a child watching those performances in her family home. Sometimes, Nigma Nimam just wouldn't show up. By 9 or 10, I do know everything. And I do know that Nigma is not around now because he is in prison. And it's only Imam who is here. Or the two are not there because both of them are in prison. So there was, there was those periods of disappearance where I, would, I don't need to question. I would already know where they are. But putting them in prison didn't do much to squash their message. Behind bars, writing became a ritual, and they still found ways to get their songs out. When we were arrested, Nigma and I, without Sheikh Imam, I wrote The Lovers Reunite, and I'm a fast writer. I wrote the poem and it was smuggled out of prison in a tangerine. The poem was written on tobacco paper and rolled inside the foil of the cigarette pack. It was rolled and squeezed inside the tangerine. It was squeezed right in the middle, so it didn't look odd. Nobody could tell there was something inside it. Once it reached Sheikh Imam outside of prison, and because he was blind, Somebody read the words to him several times until he remembered them. The song that was smuggled outside of prison in a tangerine is called It Gamaulache or The Lovers Reunite. This is one of the most important songs in Sheikh Imam's uh, repertoire. And the song goes this, the lovers reunite in the Citadel prison. They gather together in Babel Khaut jail. The sun is a little song rising from the cells. Egypt is a song streaming from throats. The lovers meet up in the cell, no matter how long they're imprisoned, no matter the oppression, no matter how immortal the jailers, who could ever hold Egypt in a cell? 
That's the refrain of this poem, and I think that's that is why this poem to this day still resonates. At this particular moment in world history, where third world countries were raging, there was movement, there were there were those big dreams of independence, that was the decolonization period, struggle, all the socialist dreams of equality and justice. They came out with Guevara Met, or Guevara's Dead, right after Che Guevara died in 1967, a loss that resonated deeply in the region. Guevara's died, Guevara's dead. On the radio, that's what they said. On the street, that's all the news. And in the mosques and in the pews, in the alleys, bars and cafes, Guevara's dead is what they said while the hearsay extends its chatty thread. If you remember the song, it begins with sort of this martial beat, kind of um, dun, 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 dun. And as the song progresses, that beat changes. It becomes, in fact, the beat of czars, um, sort of popular exorcisms. And it actually speeds up. So. As we get to the end, and here's the, the music the entire time is sort of supporting the slow shift from the fact that Guevara is dead to this other message that is not, it's not obvious. It's not obvious that when Guevara is dead, that what you need to do is get up and take his place and carry on the struggle. But in essence, that's what Negum's words say, but it's, it's Sheikh Imam's song and his, the melody and the way the rhythm changes um, to become at the very, by the end, sort of a frantic, urgent sort of call to action. The song ends, so my dear slaves, here is the lesson. Guevara's cry is always the same and your choices are but one. There's nothing for you to do but to declaim, prepare for war, or be done. In the early 1970s, their music was gaining popularity among university students, becoming a soundtrack to the student movement happening at the time. They would share in the demonstrations, and even if they were not there, their songs were sung by, by university students on strike during this period, because this was also the period of uh, Sadat, Mohadat Salem, the peace treaty with Israel, and hence uh, university students were very angry so they were there, physically and non-physically. But one of their biggest hits was yet to come. That's after the break.
1974, U.S. President Richard Nixon touched down in Cairo on a state visit with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. And so if Nasser, Sadat's predecessor, is really promoting essentially state socialism and looking towards the Soviet Union, with Sadat we see this pivot to the U.S. um, and to open market economics and capitalism. Nixon was about to land in Egypt, the first visit by a U.S. head of state in decades. At home, he was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, and his impeachment hearings were well underway. When Nixon stepped out onto the tarmac at Cairo International Airport, he was greeted by a huge crowd. There was a military procession, a gaggle of media people, dignitaries, and Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat. Sadat ends up escorting Nixon to this jet black Cadillac. They then join this 200-vehicle caravan that is moving very slowly from the airport to Oba Palace in downtown Cairo. This was not a, a silent affair. And so you have Egyptians chanting things like, we believe in Nixon, welcome to a man of peace in Arabic. There are other chants that are sounding off in English. People saying, long live Sadat, long live Nixon. Eventually, the pair arrived at Kubba Palace, stayed the night there, and the next day, got on a train heading to Alexandria. And so it stops at several stations. More Egyptians are there lining the tracks. Uh, Some of them release these flocks of doves. Others greet Nixon with flowers. And then we have more chants and more public address systems. Just another spectacular moment. But away from the crowds and the loudspeakers and the billboards, Nigmanimem were at work. I just imagine them sitting in a cafe, hearing about all of this commotion and festivities surrounding Nixon's visit, and then penning this poem and setting it to song and offering this completely different narrative of his welcome. Thank you for gracing us with your presence, Daddy Nixon, Mr. Watergate Man. They threw you quite a show, those sultans of fava beans and oil. They rolled out the red carpet from Alexandria to Mecca, and from there you stopped in Akka. And they said you were performing the Hajj. It's one big carnival everywhere you look. Saints help us. What? <laughs> what? Yani, yani, this kind of poetry which draws a story, which draws an image, which makes fun of the American president at the time, who was coming to Egypt for a, an official visit. I mean, they were crazy. <laughs> they were totally nuts in a great way. The real cut or, or point of this poem is not just making fun of Nixon, it's more making fun of the Egyptians who bend over backwards to, to host him. And the song, sort of, it's them that the song is skewering and, and skewering them for being obsequious. Um, the poem ends this invective or this satire 
by saying this. Listen to my words and hold on to them in case you don't last much longer. I won't say, welcome, make yourself a moron, or tell you to come or not. They say that Egyptian meat, where it goes, it goes bad. And that on account of all the kushri and favas and greasy weevils, it's a never-ending circus. A couple of months after Nixon's welcome and Nixon Baba begins to circulate, Nigam, Imam, uh, they were all arrested. And the reason from the Egyptian government that was given for arresting them was uh, smoking hashish, that they were doing drugs. And that's the reason that they were being arrested. But something that uh, comes to light in terms of this text is that everyone knew that wasn't the reason why they were arrested. They were arrested for their lampooning of the Egyptian government. But in prison or not, their music continued to grow as part of the counterculture, especially under Sadat. It was a time when musicians became famous through TV or radio broadcast. But these were state-controlled, and there was no way they were going to play Nigma and Imam's protest music. I mean, there was this very clear decision on the part of the decision makers not to include uh, this kind of work in the mainstream uh, media. Not that they would have wanted their music to air on state radio anyway. So the answer? Cassette tapes, some of which were recorded in Sahar's family home. Those cassettes were recorded, yes, during these informal gatherings, and you would find in them, you know, people laughing and and commenting and cheering and repeating and 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 they are the chorus and they work as chorus as well so it's all improvised you would have uh, children crying and uh, a woman across the street calling her son it was all there <laughs> The recordings started at those gatherings. Using huge Nagra recorders, and later through cassette tapes when they became a trend. And so in terms of the the circulation of their music, this is all taking place on non-commercial cassette tapes. 
tapes that are being created, copied, pirated, circulated by individuals. And so one of the things that Imam said in this, this interview that I stumbled upon is when he was asked about mass media, he said, the masses are my media. In terms of people relaying his songs, recording them, passing them along. In the case of a man, piracy was encouraged. <laughs> it is how his cassettes were copied and were circulated. <laughs> People exchanged cassettes like they knew that if a tape was confiscated, its owner could be jailed for a month or so. So they were handled carefully. You could also easily hide them. So this meant the cassettes lived longer. And one thing here as well is due to the size of cassettes, the fact that they're highly mobile, people also traveled with them outside of Egypt. And so you have people recording a mem or pirating these cassettes and then taking these cassettes to London, to Paris, Algeria, Tunisia, Lebanon, the Gulf, and then people pirating the cassettes there. Of course, of course. Why wouldn't their tapes go to Maghreb and Algeria and Syria and have an audience. Why wouldn't it? It's the same wound, the same brokenness, the same aspirations for for freedom and for justice, equality. Despite the ban from performing freely or on mainstream media, their cassettes made it to cities all over the region, and they became popular among the Arab diaspora, especially in Paris. By 1984, when Sadat was no longer in power, Imam and Nigm were finally able to travel. They performed in theaters in Tunisia, Algeria, Syria, and France. So in terms of this world tour in the Middle East and also outside of it, Imam ends up performing in theaters with quite large, boisterous audiences that would sing along with him. And then he also performed in people's living rooms and houses, much like he did in Egypt. And there's also grainy home videos of those informal concerts as well. And in the case of one concert in Algeria, um, I came across this Algerian journalist saying, oh yes, people are well aware of Imam songs because they encountered them on cassette tapes, even before he actually arrived here. Even today, Sheikh Imam has a massive following, especially in Tunisia, where there is a cultural space called Masar, where they teach Sheikh Imam songs. Everyone we spoke to said that Nigma and Imam's partnership came to an end sometime around the mid-1980s. By then, Imam was well into his 60s, but nobody knew exactly why they split up. 
Actually, I don't know much about this time. Any, what is it exactly that happened? Um, and I don't think that any, none of them came out and spoke clearly about their disagreement. Negam and Imam have not a falling out, but there is some tension between them around the time of that world tour in terms of their their commitment to their work and, and kind of questions of celebrity and fame. And those are things that I've seen only alluded to in sources, not really discussed at at any length. And so it's not something I could speak on, but it's something that some people acknowledge that their relationship became a bit more complex. <laughs> In the summer of 1995, a small article was printed in the back pages of a Lahram newspaper, noting that Sheikh Imam has passed away. It was short and perhaps intentionally unremarkable. So it notes Imam's age. It says that he was suffering from diabetes that he became famous after the 1967 war, that he performed a number of critical songs, is how the paper refers to it, with Nigam, and that he once received an award from an international association. And so people reading this, Imam's compatriots, um, his friends, his fans, were so outraged They felt this obituary was so irreverent and insulting that they actually end up submitting a second obituary to Al-Ahram, which is printed in the paper the following day. So that's where we see Imam referred to as the artist of the people. We see the names of 170 individuals cascade down the page, signatories on that obituary, people that Imam had an impact on. And something that that strikes me, especially in this case, is this writing and rewriting that was just so essential to uh, Imam's life and his work. And we see it playing out even in his death <laughs> when it comes to these these two texts in Al-Ahram. And so that's kind of where, where his story, uh, where his life wraps up. <laughs> Sahar had kept her cassettes from Nigma and Imam's glory days, but she rarely listened to them. It brings me back to my own history, my own childhood, my parents who are no longer there, Imam and Nigma who are not, I mean, very, very heavy and painful. However, <laughs> in 2011, when there was a rebirth for uh, Nigman Imam. I could tune in and I could sing without pain. In 2011, during the Egyptian Revolution, their music was revived. Lines from Nigm's poems were chanted as slogans, and Sheikh Imam's songs were covered by musicians and sung by thousands in Tahrir Square. They were reborn to generations they, they didn't know about them. And with the collective voice in the squares, I was shaken, completely shaken, but not in a painful way. It was joy that I knew they would 
جو اون ليفينج يعني اما الشباب نزلوا يغنوا في 28 يناير When young people were singing on January 28 and 2011, they sang three songs for Sheikh Yimeya. I remember very well. It was the 30th of January. We set up the stage. At least 250,000 people were singing along in Tahrir Square. That was a totally different feeling. Truthful, honest writing will live forever. This has happened so many times throughout history all over the world. He played his role. He knew very well that an artist should take a stand based on what he believes in. He composed the music and sang with so much passion. You can feel it and see it when you listen to the recordings. He believed in what he did. regardless of the consequences, whether that was a deep admiration for his work or if he was labeled an enemy of the regime. I think what they are offering us is something similar to what they offered back in the 1960s and 70s. This period, I mean, as, as Egyptians, we didn't have freedoms. We didn't have equality. We didn't have... everything, just like today. I mean, there isn't much of a difference, actually. And despite that, despite the gloomy big picture, and despite sometimes not having dinner on the table, they made it. They wrote and they sung, people listened, and it was there. And hence, It's, it's actually, it's, it's about those broken moments. It's about our brokenness and our ability from the heart of brokenness, at least, not to act. Sometimes you're, you're even incapable of acting, but at least to believe that something could come out of this and should come out of this. That no matter how dire that the, the circumstances are, no matter how tied up we all are, something will come up. An opening will take place. Um, a change will happen because this is the law of life. Life constantly brings about changes. في ظهر الغمام ومدت على الدنيا موجة صدام إذا الشمس غرقت في ظهر الغمام ومدت على الدنيا موجة صدام ومات البصر في العيون والبصائر وغاب الطريق في الخطوط والدوائر يا ساير يا داير يا This episode was produced by Nadeem Shakir, Hiba Sharif, and Alex Atak, and edited by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri, and sound design and mixing by Munzir Al-Hashim. Voiceover by Ihab Saudi and translation help from Mahal Qadi. Our team also includes Zena Duidar. 
The songs you heard on this episode were composed and performed by Sheikh Imam and written by Ahmed Fuad Nagim and Zain al-Abdin Fuad. Translations by Ahmed Hassan and Elliot Kola. A special thanks to Zain al-Abidin Fuad, Fahar al-Mugi, Elliot Kulla, and Andrew Simon for speaking to us for this episode. Andrew's book is called Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. And listeners, guess what? This is our last episode for the season. We're going to be taking a break for the next few months while we put together another round of stories for you. But stay tuned to the feed because in the meantime, we'll be dropping bonus episodes and cute little stories, including a special collaboration that we're really excited about. And that's coming in June. We're also running a listener survey about this last season because honestly, we really want to hear what you thought. We want to know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you want to see more of, less of, all of it. Brutal honesty, fully acceptable. It'll only take a few minutes and it would really help us come back bigger and better next season. We'll put a link to it in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening to all of our episodes or listening to some or listening to just this one. We appreciate you with all our hearts and we hope to see you soon. Take care.